Hi NCF, my name is Peter. It's a privilege to be with you again. You know, I was really looking forward to seeing you guys at St. John's, not only because we haven't seen each other face to face in such a long time, but after service, I was hoping to grab a slice of New York pizza. Um, as many of you guys know, I live in Northern New Jersey and the pizza around here is, well, you taste it and you tell me. Uh, but I hope you guys had a happy Thanksgiving. I'm happy to be here. Our text today is from the end of Philippians chapter 1 verse 27 to chapter 2 verse 2 and uh, just to kind of orient us um, to this text so far up to this point Paul um, gives thanks to the Philippians for their partnership and support. He's expressed his passion for the gospel and his love and devotion to Jesus Christ and how much he longs to see the Philippians. And even though he's in prison, you know, Paul's in prison while he's writing this letter, he tells them that he rejoices because it's clear for Paul that his life was about something, or should I say someone, bigger than himself. He leaves us with that iconic phrase for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And now in the text here in chapter 1 verse 27, Paul is starting a section of exhortation. In other words, he's telling the Philippians what it means to lean in, what it means to live out the gospel that he proclaims. He says, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So today, let's look at that phrase, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. First, let's look at what that phrase means. And second, let's look at how that phrase might apply to our lives. All right, so first, you know, what does that phrase mean? Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Well, if we take a snippet of that phrase, let your manner of life, that's actually a single Greek word. Ancient Greek is the original language that the New Testament was written in. And that phrase literally means behave as citizens. So really, you can read this text as behave as citizens worthy of the gospel of Christ. And it's a curious sounding phrase. It, it almost sounds like something that might not belong in a religious text like ours because the tone of it is more civic than it is religious. Like for example, a religious te text might say, walk in the ways of the gospel of Jesus Christ or live out the gospel of Jesus Christ. But to behave as citizens, this is a statement about civic duty. Behave as citizens worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now, why would Paul use this language? Well, commentators say it's because this phrase would have brought out a particular mindset, a particular attitude in the Philippians. Like the Philippians heard this and they immediately knew the effect that Paul was going for. How so? Well, Philippi was originally part of the Macedonian Empire, and you can read all about this in Wikipedia like I did. Right? The city of Philippi was named after Philip of Macedon. He's the father of a, uh, a, a well-known figure named Alexander the Great. Philippi got conquered by Rome in 168 BC. So at the time, it was a Roman province. But 125 years later, a guy named Gaius Octavius, um, later known as Caesar Augustus, the first emperor of the Roman Empire, he eventually refounded refounded it so it was no longer a province but now a military colony in the Roman Empire. So whenever a Roman province is upgraded to colony, its status is elevated and all its residents automatically become Roman citizens. 
So this happened just about a hundred years before Paul wrote this letter. So in somewhat recent memory, Philippi went from a conquered province to a Roman colony. And this means that for the ordinary Philippian, they went from subject to a citizen of the greatest civilization at the time. And with citizen came, citizenship came benefits, it came with freedom, it came with prestige. And so by using this phrase, live in a manner worthy, behave as citizens, this would have invoked a sense of civic pride and identity to live up to. And you don't need to open up a history book. You see why even in the Bible, um, there was a certain weight to Roman citizenship. Like for example, a couple of times in Acts, you know, Paul, um, you know, gets jailed, he gets beaten, he gets flogged for doing his missionary work. But once Paul told the magistrates or he told the police that he was a Roman citizen, you see the text says that they feared. Right? Roman citizenship meant something. It gave people identity, it gave people status, it gave people rights. So for the Philippians, this was in a sense good news. Right? This was good news that the Caesar who ruled the kingdom, um, in his eyes, you were no longer this classless barbarian. You were no longer this nobody. In his eyes, now you were a somebody. Right? You, um, you were members, you were citizens of the greatest civilization in the world. Now, take that and apply it to the gospel, not of Caesar, but of Jesus Christ. Paul says, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Behave as citizens, live in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ because of the good news of how Jesus Christ has changed you. Think about who we are or what we are apart from Jesus. What does it mean to be human? Now, I understand that's a huge question that can open a giant Pandora's box, but on a high level, right, there are differing views and philosophies out there. You know, some people say that we as humans occupy a very special place in the earth, um, you know, because of our outsized brains and our position in the uh, food chain ecosystem that, you know, we are like the, the, the center of the earth. Um, others say, no, we shouldn't think so highly of ourselves, that we should be conscious of all the other species that are out there on earth. But the bottom line is, no matter how special or how unspecial you think it might be to be a human, Apart from some literal divine intervention, all of us, we live for a time and we die. And I, I don't know if you remember, but the last time um, I was here, you know, I mentioned the author of Ecclesiastes. He would point out a truth that no matter what you set out to accomplish or no matter what your aspirations are, you know, to become someone great, your fate is the same as that of a fool or that of a dud who spent his entire life doing absolutely nothing. Because all of us, we live for a time and then we die. No matter what we do or no matter what we don't do, all of us live for a time and then we die. And when we die, all of our accomplish or lack thereof, they die with us. But the gospel of Jesus Christ, understood and received by faith, makes us a new creation. You know, the Roman Empire had a great run for hundreds of years, but like every human empire before it, it eventually fell. And let's face it, no one really cares about Roman citizenship today. But the gospel makes us a citizen, not of Rome or any kingdom of this world. 
It makes us a citizen of heaven. That's a phrase that Paul uses in chapter 3, verse 20. It changes us so that in the eyes of the only judge whose opinion of us actually matters, we are no longer outcasts. We are no longer objects of scorn or wrath. No matter how bad you were, no matter how big your regrets about life, or on the flip side, no matter how good you think you are, or how moral or how hard you try, if in Christ you die to that old self and you cling to him by faith, you are considered what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you have not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Amen. And so when Paul says, live in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ, he exhorts us to live into who we truly are. Jesus Christ, the name that is above all names, has brought you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So now, more than you are an Asian or an American or an Asian American, black, white, Hispanic, more than you are a Biden lover or Trump supporter or Democrat or Republican, a father or mother, husband or wife, whatever your title is at work, whatever your title is at church, because of what Jesus Christ has done for you, you are now connected to God as an adopted child to their father. At the center of our identity is child of God. Now, J.I. Packer was a beloved theologian and a brilliant mind, but what he says about what it means to be a Christian is so tender. Right? He says, if you, wanna, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, how, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. The gospel of Jesus Christ tells you you've been given benefits, you've been given status, you've been given rights of inheritance. So live up to who you are. Live up to the identity that you've been given. Live in a manner worthy of the gospel as citizens who belong to a kingdom not of this world, but in heaven where God himself is. So, so far we talked about what that phrase means to live in a manner worthy of the gospel. This brings us to our second half. How does this phrase apply to us? What does it mean for the way we live our lives? And, you know, I hope that so far I haven't said anything too controversial or mind-blowing. I think that phrase that we looked at so far is pretty straightforward. And you could be here um, or be online listening, nodding your head in agreement. And I'll say it's one thing to understand. It's another thing to actually put this into practice. It's one thing to know. It's another thing to live and to express it's, it's one thing to decide in your head that yes, you know, citizen of heaven, you know, I get this. This is who I am. This is how I'm going to live. It's another thing to, to bear the weight of that, to endure over a long period of time when that identity is tested, when it's challenged, when it costs. You know, because Paul points out the reality of how certain people outside the church in Philippi reacted responded to Christians who decided to live in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We see it in two words that I want to bring out in verses 28 and 29. They are opposition and suffering. Right? Look in verse 28, right? that you are not frightened in anything by your opponents. 
And as a result of this opposition, verse 29, it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. <clears throat> Excuse me. Interesting what Paul says about suffering. Paul says that it's been granted to you for the sake of Christ that you not only believe in him. In other words, like he writes in so many of epistles, his epistles, he affirms that belief, faith, is something that's granted to you. It, it's grace. It's a gift. But notice, it's not only grace that you believe in him, but it's also been granted to you that you suffer for his sake. Suffering is grace. In other words, if you're a Christian and you're living it right, Paul says to the Philippians, you can expect opposition and suffering. Suffering is a gift. It comes with the package. Now, in some parts of the world, even today, to be a Christian means you have a literal target on your back. And opposition and the suffering that comes as a result of it, they are daily, constant realities. Right? People, you know, you read the news, people continue to die even today because they profess belief in Jesus. But most of us watching this morning, we live in America. And for the most part, in America, you can be a Christian without fearing for your life. Like you can drive to church without worrying about whether or not the government is watching your back. Or you can post on Facebook like a lot of my friends do that, hey, you know, my church is live streaming now. Or, hey, here's the worship service link um, for our church this Sunday. You can do this without fearing for whether or not you have a job the next day. Or at least that's the case for the time being, right? Things seem to be changing. Um, but by and large, we can live in America as Christians without fear of persecution, without fear of op opposition, without fear of suffering. But sometimes I wonder, you know, if we faced opposition and suffering for our faith, more active forms of it, you know, I wonder how many of us would remain as Christians. Because right? I wonder, you know, uh, many, many of us, we, you know, we go to work, we go to church, we could stay in our communities uh, without experiencing anything of what Paul is talking about here. And, you know, why is this? Why is this the case? Why is it that we can be Christians without experiencing the opposition and suffering that Paul talks about? You know, sometimes I wonder, as one commentator points out, whether our ability to live as Christians without opposition, without suffering, is really a failure to see Christian life the way Paul did. To truly understand the cost, to truly understand What's at stake when we profess faith in Jesus? Look with me at verse 27. He says that as Christians, we should be standing firm in one spirit. Right? Jesus said, you know, just as the world hates me, it will hate you. Right? This is the reality of how the world will regard the Christian message. So Paul says it's necessary right, to, to stand firm in one spirit. It's this, it's this picture of being united like in a team, in an athletic team like an offensive or defensive line. You're to, to stay together, intimately knit into a community. Right? Living a life worthy of the gospel takes thought. It takes teamwork. Right? It takes a sense of togetherness. It continues with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. The ESV says striving. Some translations say contending. And the, the bottom line meaning is you're fighting for the faith. Right? You're fighting for the faith of the gospel. Christianity is not a, a passive experience. It's something that you need to stand up for. 
It's something you need to fight for. And so it's clear for Paul, Christianity wasn't about like fitting into this world. You know, you know, for so many of us, I feel like all we want is just to be liked. Right? And trust me, I struggle with this too. You know, we just want to be liked. Whether it's literal likes on Facebook or Instagram or whether it's to be liked enough to be accepted by someone or some group in the office or some social circle, you know, whatever the cost, we're content just to be liked. You know, how many decisions about the, the jobs that we take or the clothes that we wear or the cars that we drive or the things that we want for our kids are influenced by this, this desire just to be liked. But the scriptures tell us again and again that if your citizenship is in heaven, if there's one who gives you true validation, true acceptance, true peace, true rest for your souls, what does it matter what the rest of creation thinks about you? What does it matter whether the people of this world like you? And at the end of the day, we're all going to be evaluated and judged by the same God, are we not? You know, so coming back, you know, Paul understood that Christianity wasn't about fitting into this world. That opposition and suffering were daily realities of living lives in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So let me ask us today, you know, how much opposition are you willing to risk? How much has being a Christian cost you? How much skin has it taken off your back? You know, let's ask some specific example questions. You know, how much acceptance has it cost? How much acceptance has it cost into social circles that you know will boost your reputation? Or acceptance into communities that you know will set your kids up for success? You know, if you're a Christian and you can happen, you happen to be able to seamlessly fit in to these kind of places, that's great. You know, but if you find that you need to be someone you're not, or you find that you need to conceal your beliefs or compromise on the person that God has called you to be in order to fit in, you know, I want to ask, why is their acceptance so important to you? You know, what are you afraid of losing? You know, for the sake of Christ, how much has being a Christian cost your kids? You know, here's a small example. I live in suburban New Jersey, and I'm sure like many of you who are parents who live in suburban areas, sports are huge in my area. You know, but practices are always on Sunday mornings. So the inevitable choice comes, what's it going to be, sports or church? Oh, you know, you might say Sunday morning is just church. You know, but, you know, just church, you know, gathering together with others who are united by the blood of Christ to worship the one true God who gives us life and who gives us breath. Just church. You know, it's an intentional decision we have to make. And I would argue that the decisions we make speak louder to our kids about, you know, who we are and what's important in life than anything that we can say. Right. How much has it cost your kids? How much... Pride has it cost you? How much face have you lost for the sake of Christ? How much has it cost to forgive, to turn the other cheek when someone has even legitimately wronged you? Right? How much money or opportunity has it cost? You know, my dad shared this uh, before as a personal testimony, so I feel like I can share 
Uh, my dad was a son of a farmer. Um, he was the first one in his family to go to college and to go to grad school. And my dad was really ambitious. He wanted to make a name for himself. So out of school, he landed this great job at this huge conglomerate Korean company. And this was back in like the late 70s, early 80s, when Korea was still a poor developing economy. Um, eventually, you know, among his peers, he really stood out. Um, and he was chosen to go to America as an expat. And mind you again, that back in the late 70s, early 80s, to be chosen to be an expat, to represent your company in this fledgling economy, in this great nation of America, that was a huge deal. So we all emigrated to the United States. And when we got here, he started going to church. And eventually he gave his life to Jesus and he became a Christian. And he came to this realization that he couldn't keep going and doing this cushy, well-paying job um, without compromising his beliefs, without compromising you know, who he became as a result of what Jesus had done in his life. Now, mind you, you know, it had nothing to do with the job itself. You know, in many ways, he was the ideal candidate. He worked hard. He spoke English. You know, he was a good guy. But he also knew that there were unspoken rules about what it takes to move up in his company. And know who my dad was before he, um, before he had an encounter with Jesus. You know, he was a notorious three-pack-a-day chain smoker. You know, he'd stay out late, um, you know, with his work buddies and, you know, and drink. And you know, that was all part of the culture. Um, and, and, you know, not that smoking and drinking and hanging out with your coworkers late at night is a measure of whether or not you're a Christian. But for a man of his culture and for many of your parents, too, I'm sure, if, if you have similar parents with a similar cultural background, right, these things were things that you did and you indulged as a person that expressed allegiance and citizenship to this world. They had certain cultural connotations with them, certain cultural baggage with them, I'm thinking Romans 14, certain baggage with them that didn't comport with the lifestyle, with the, with the new life that they had in Jesus Christ. So that he knew for himself something had to change. Right? So right away he quit smoking and eventually he gave up his job. He borrowed a lot of money um, and he opened up a business in an industry he had no idea about. Right? And, you know, I wish I could tell you that the story has a happy ending, that, you know, God had blessed him for the choices that he had made, that somehow later on he became rich, both spiritually and materially. I'll say half of that equation is true. You know, he did start his own business. And like I said, it took a lot of debt to get started. But for me growing up, I know this. You know, we were never financially well off. You know, money was always a problem. Right? It was always a struggle. But you ask him whether or not he would trade that for a second. You know, whether he would trade that, 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 that opportunity that he lost. Right? Whether he would quit his job again. You ask him about you know, any of the choices he made. Whether he regrets them or not. And he will tell you absolutely not. Right? That all the trials. All the refining. All that, that, that ringer experience that God had put him through. All of this was necessary um, to bring him closer to the Lord. He will say all of this that happened to him at the end of the day was grace. So, fellow citizen of heaven, 
you who are called to live in a manner of life worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. How much has being a Christian cost you? You know, for Paul, you know, when he tells the Philippians to, to live in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, when he tells them to expect opposition and suffering, he's not telling anybody to go through or expect something that he hasn't really experienced for himself. You know, for Paul, living in a manner worthy of the gospel had ultimately put him in prison, right? He's in prison as he's writing this letter. Living in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ meant he gave up all the things that allowed him to hold his head up high among the Jews um, in his community, among the Pharisees. Because he was a Christian, he was beaten. Because he professed faith in Christ, he was shamed. He was rejected. And ultimately, his allegiance, his love, and his devotion, his loyalty to Jesus Christ would cost him his life. But if we were to see Paul in heaven, and if we were to ask him if he regretted any of the things that he did, if he regretted any of the choices that he'd make, I promise you he would say, no regrets. That all the things, all the trials, all the refining, all the suffering, all the beating that he experienced, these were things that happened to him as a result of God's grace. And that if he had to do it all over again, he would do it the same. Why? Because Paul, he understood enough who Jesus was and what Jesus had done for him. So in light of that, all the opposition, all the suffering that he experienced himself wasn't unusual or unexpected, right? Because he knew that opposition and suffering on a whole different scale is what it cost for him and for all of us to enjoy the benefits of becoming citizens of the kingdom of heaven. For us to become people who can live lives in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, it came at a huge cost. And if you're a Christian, you know this already. That cost was paid for by our Savior, by our Savior Jesus Christ. Yes, on the one hand, Jesus faced opposition. Jesus faced suffering from the religious establishment. While Jesus was here on earth, he faced rejection, he faced scorn, he faced betrayal, even from his closest friends. But that rejection, that opposition, that suffering pales in comparison to that which he faced on the cross. The opposition and suffering that he faced on the cross was more painful, more jarring than anything he's experienced ever in his life and and we know this because we he cried out to his father the the only one who had his back his entire life as he was facing opposition and suffering in his earthly life the only father that had his back that supported him that gave him strength turned his face away as he faced the wrath of god on that cross when jesus said my god my god why have you forsaken me right on that cross the scorn the wrath, the condemnation he faced, and the death that resulted ended up paying the price to atone for all that separated us, all that separated Paul from God. What Jesus faced on the cross paid the price for us to be legitimately transformed from nobodies who go from dust to dust to those who go from dust to citizens destined for glory. How did it cost Jesus his life? 
to bring us out of darkness into his marvelous light, to bring us from dust to an eternity of glory. If it cost Jesus his life, what has following Jesus cost you? Now, I want to end with uh, chapter 1, verses 1, chapter 2, verses 1 to 2. He's, he, Paul writes here, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and one mind. I think the, the bottom line, the gist of what Paul is saying here is that we don't face opposition and suffering alone. We experience it on the one hand in union with God. Right? He tells us that Jesus encourages us, that there's participation in the Spirit. And you think about that for a second. That's an amazing thought. We have intimate union through our suffering with God himself. Right? But Paul leaves us also with something that's really concrete, and that's our union with each other. Right? We mentioned this before, there's something powerful and comforting about the church, about the community that we're called to be a part of. Right? Brothers and sisters, we're all in this together until that day Jesus returns and calls us home. And finally, as the author of Revelation says, he will wipe every tear from our eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away grace and peace to you. Let's pray together. Father, enable us to let our manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Give us courage and unity in the face of opposition. Give us endurance in the face of suffering. And grant that we, as your church, would be united in the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.